Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So I remind you, you're listening to our recording provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read at Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No siree. All right, we start off, unfortunately, with a couple of obituaries. This first one is from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 27, 2024. Gerald Sherman Pikus, January 9, 1926 to February 21, 2024. Author unknown. After a long life, well-lived and well-loved, our patriarch Gerald S. Pikus passed away on February 21, 2024. He was the beloved husband of Joy former Los Angeles City Council member, cherished father of Larry, Susan, Mark, Nancy, and Emily Bryan, and the treasured grandfather of Amalia, Todd, Daniel, Isaac, Aaron, Tamar, Matthew, Emma, Valerie, Tyrone, and Weston, and also a dear great-grandfather to Max and Charlotte. Joy and Jerry would have celebrated their 72nd wedding anniversary on March 9, 2024. Jerry was born in Madison, Wisconsin, to Max and Mildred, both of whom emigrated to the U.S. from Minsk, Belarus. They worked hard to find and live in the American dream, moving to Chicago, where they owned a grocery store where Jerry helped as often as possible. After graduating from high school, Jerry entered the University of Chicago on scholarship and was allowed to finish the two-year bachelor's degree program in physics before being drafted by the Navy during World War II. He was trained in electronics. After the war ended, Jerry continued his naval service and was assigned to repair electronic communications equipment in Hawaii until he was discharged after about nine months. He returned to the University of Chicago where he completed his PhD in physics. While studying there, he was both a student and a teaching assistant of renowned physicist Enrico Fermi and Edward Teller. Jerry and Joy met on a blind date in the summer of 1950 when Joy was a student at the University of Wisconsin. Joy graduated in 1951, and they were married in March 1952. After earning his Ph.D., the couple moved to Washington, D.C., where he worked for the Naval Research Laboratory for six years. Their children, Larry, Mark, Emily, and Emily, were born there, and Jerry, always a strong and supportive husband, was present in the delivery room, an extraordinary experience for a man of his generation. In 1960, Jerry accepted a position with the Hughes Aircraft Company, and the family moved to California, first to Orange County, and two years later to Woodland Hills, where Jerry began work at Hughes Research Lab in Malibu. A devoted and supportive husband, Jerry was always at Joy's side as she pursued election to the Los Angeles City Council, serving from 1977 to 1993. She counted on his sage advice as she grappled with some of the tough issues of the day. After retiring from Hughes, Jerry served as a visiting fellow in the physics department at Caltech. Joy and Jerry enjoyed the theater, concerts, dance programs, museums, and other cultural events. They were avid travelers, traveling with their family to national parks in the West, and together Joy and Jerry visited many parts of the world. They were especially proud to have toured all 50 state capitals, and they took each grandchild on a special trip upon their 13th birthday. In his life, Jerry's children, their spouses, and grandchildren enjoyed a close and loving relationship with him. They all had special times together, whether it was Jerry assisting with math and science projects, reading books and stories, or simply hanging out. 
We will miss him and love him always. The family requests that donations in memory of Jerry be sent to Los Angeles Jewish Health, the Seasons Soraya, H-A-M-A-K-O-M, or Temple Valley Beth Shalom. It was Gerald Sherman Pikus, January 9, 1926 to February 21, 2024, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 27, 2024. And here's one more from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 1, 2024. Richard Lewis, 1947 to 2024, stand-up and curb star, made art out of fetching. The acerbic comedian rose to fame by divulging his darkest moments with wit by Nardine Saad and Alexandra Del Rosario. Comedian Richard Lewis built a career on making himself a punchline, but in HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm, sincerity was his specialty. As a fictionalized version of himself, Lewis often injected the long-running cynical comedy with wholesome lines about the decades-long friendship he shared with co-star Larry David. When I die... I want you to know how much I care about you, Lewis tells David in a minor squabble about his will during the show's final season. You're my best friend. For more than 20 years, Lewis, often appearing in his signature dark clothing and round sunglasses, channeled his bond with David and his self-deprecating humor to become a beloved fixture on the comedy classic. Lewis died Tuesday peacefully at his home in Los Angeles. He was 76. Lewis's publicist, Jeff Abraham, confirmed to the Times that the comedian died after suffering a heart attack. His wife, Joyce Lepinski, thanks everyone for all their love, friendship, and support, and asks for privacy at this time, Abraham said. HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm is just a part of Lewis's legacy, which included a stand-up comedy career spanning decades, a memoir about his sobriety, and appearances in Leaving Las Vegas, Mel Brooks's, and Mel Brooks's Robin Hood Men in Tights. In April 2023, Lewis detailed his Parkinson's disease diagnosis, which he, which derailed his decades-long stand-up comedy career. After 50 years almost, I'm gonna just call it quits, he said at the time. R.I.P. to a true original at the Richard Lewis, comedian Bill Burr wrote on X, formerly Twitter, an absolutely fearless comedian, who did and said what he wanted. His comedic brilliance, wit, and talent were unmatched, HBO said in a statement shared with Variety. Richard will always be a cherished member of the HBO and Curb Your Enthusiasm families. Our heartfelt condolences go out to his family, friends, and all the fans who could count on Richard to brighten their days with laughter. Lewis began his career in his 20s, performing at New York's Improv, and was taken under the wing of David Brenner, was known as the king of observational comedy. He found his footing in dark comedy, bringing his struggles with alcoholism, drug addiction, and his broken family to the stage. It's great to be here. It's great to be in a city that means more to me than my family, quite frankly, he said during, uh, to welcome audiences during a set in 1990. Aptly known as the Prince of Pain, Lewis wasn't shy about letting audiences know about his afflictions. His TV specials played into this persona, including I'm Doomed, I'm in Pain, and I'm Exhausted, preceding his days on Curb. Lewis gained popularity following appearances on several shows, including Late Night with David Letterman and The Howard Stern Show in the 80s and 90s. Before he was on Curb Your Enthusiasm in 2000, Lewis appeared as a fictional version of himself in Diary of a Young Comic, 
a TV movie about the L.A. comedy scene, and films that's adequate, Once Upon a Crime, and Game Day. In Kirby Enthusiasm, Lewis is a loyal friend to David, constantly going along with his petty grievances against those around him. However, in real life, that friendship took time. Lewis and David first met as pre-teens in a childhood sports camp, Lewis said in a 2023 interview with The Spectator. I disliked him intensely. He was cocky. He was arrogant, he said. We were arch rivals. I couldn't wait for the camp to be over just to get away from Larry. I'm sure he felt the same way, he said. Reconnecting in the New York comedy scene years later, Lewis and David gave friendship another shot, paving the way for decades of on-screen bickering and memorable exchanges. Richard and I were born three days apart in the same hospital, and for most of my life he's been like a brother to me, David said in a statement shared with the Associated Press. He had that rare combination of being the funniest person and also the sweetest. But today he made me sob, and for that I'll never forgive him. Lewis also appeared in 2012's Vamps and 2014's She's Funny That Way, as well as the TV series Anything But Love, Daddy Dearest, Hiller and Diller, Seventh Heaven, Until Death, and Blunt Talk. I went into this for psychological reasons, Lewis told the Times in 2014. My family, it wasn't an abusive family, they meant well, but they were in their own world. Lewis was born on June 29, 1947 in New York and grew up in New Jersey. His father died at a young age and said he felt isolated by his mother and disconnected from his two siblings. His sister had four children before Lewis turned 19. He also had a brother whom he said was off in the village reading Howl on the cor- uh, street corners. He began a stand-up career after graduating from Ohio State University in 1969. He entered the comedy circuit around the same time that Jay Leno, Freddie Prinze, and Billy Crystal did. I was 23, and all sorts of people were coming in and out and watching me, like Steve Allen and Bette Midler. David Brenner certainly took me under his wing. To drive home to my little dump in New Jersey, often knowing that Steve Allen said, you got it. That validation kept me going in a big, big way, Lewis said. As he wrote in other, The Other Great Depression, I'm overcoming on a daily basis at least a million addictions and dysfunctions and finding a spiritual sometimes life. Lewis was 44 when he was hospitalized after suffering from a lethal mix of alcohol and drugs. He decided to get sober in 1995, which according to his biography, he was especially grateful for. In 2015, he published his second book, Reflections from Hell, Richard Lewis's Guide on How Not to Live, with his longtime friend, artist Carl Nicholas Titolo, who provided the illustrations. Stars including The Daily Show, host Jon Stewart, Albert Brooks, and Jamie Lee Curtis, comedian Paul Feige, and Curb, star, Curb co-star Ben Stiller paid tribute to Lewis, remembering his contributions to the comedy scene. R.I.P. Richard Lewis a brilliantly funny man who will miss who who will miss uh, by all. The world needed him now more than ever, wrote Curb co-star Brooks. Sleep well, Richard. I'll try to take good care of our face, celebrity lookalike Stewart tweeted. Curtis, who led the TV series Anything But Love with Lewis, shared two tributes on Instagram, remembering the deep and freaking funny comedian. He also was the reason I'm sober. He helped me. I am forever grateful for him for the act of grace alone, she wrote. 
He found love with Joyce, and that, of course, besides his sobriety, is what mattered most to him. I'm weeping as I write this. I never met a kinder, more empathetic comedy genius. He was so funny and deep, tweeted actor-director Stiller, who said Lewis was a friend to him and his parents, Jerry Miller and Ann Mira. As a kid, I remember seeing him at the improv and how nice he was to me and my sister. Over the years, he would always reach out with support and love or a kind word, sometimes out of the blue. It always felt special to hear from him. I feel very lucky to have known him over all these years. I'm sad I won't see him again. That was Richard Lewis, 1947 to 2024. Stand-up and curb star made art out of confectioning by Nardine Saad and Alexandra Del Rosario. From the calendar section, the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 1st, 2024. Here is a follow-up article from the same calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 1st, 2024. Best of Foes, but Still Best Friends by Whitney Friedlander. Richard Lewis's shtick was both morose and personal. The comedian who died Tuesday at 76 had stand-up specials with names like I'm in Pain and I'm Exhausted, and his memoir from 2000 is titled The Other Great Depression. He usually dressed in all black and would speak self-deprecatingly and candidly about relationships, therapy, and addiction. He's credited with coining the phrase from hell as in cat from hell or date from hell, and set his uh, and his sets included a lot of ranting and yelling at no one in particular. But when Lewis appeared on HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm, there was a focus to his ire. His lifelong friend and the series' star and creator, Larry David. From the first episode of the show, when Lewis's version of himself screams at David's heightened version of himself for not liking his girlfriend, the men are the bickering old Marys that the show deserved. In fact, even after Lewis announced in 2023 that he had Parkinson's disease and would retire from stand-up, he still appeared on Curb's final season. Fittingly, in the third episode, Vertical Drop, Horizontal Tug, which aired February 18, they argued over David's objection to Lewis making him the benefactor of his will. HBO confirmed that he will appear in three more episodes. The Times spoke with both Lewis and David ahead of the premiere of Curb's final season, with the former promising that all of the bickering he did, all of the bickering did come from a place of love. We have this profound affliction for one another and respect for our craft, Lewis said in the interview, and we've always been there for one another. Some of my idiosyncratic things in my behavior that he picks up on, and he has ever since were we were adolescents. He really re has remembered most of the juicy ones and has put them into the show. Offscreen, David learned to choose his battles. When they were younger, Lewis said that David teased him about his penchant for black clothing, but that now he totally accepts it. However, Lewis added, no matter where we are, if I say something that he thinks he's catched me in and, and saying something idiotic or properly, he'll nail me for it. We do try to catch each other all the time uh, in real life, Lewis said. It's some kind of game we play. I guess we're unusual best friends. Lewis said that the real and fictitious versions of themselves sort of blurs. He came home one day after shooting Curve and told his wife, Joyce Lapinski, that he wasn't sure what he'd film, but it involved yelling and hurling a chopstick at David. She responded, 
Did you once actually throw a chopstick at him? Series executive producer and frequent director Jeff Schaefer told the Times ahead of Curb's season premiere, We have a lot of fun in scenes with Richard because I think there li there's literally no restrictions. And David noted, because we're such old friends, I can say anything I want to him and vice versa. So there's a certain freedom that comes with that. Anything I say to him on the show, I would say to him in life. I think I'd treat him worse in life. But Lewis also knew how to use this in his favor. If I'm going to say something hopefully funny, but also serious, I don't stare directly into his eyes, Lewis said, because if I'll do, he'll laugh. That was Best of Foes, but still Best Friends by Whitney Friedlander. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 1st, 2024. Okay, we're going to move on to some Israel stories. We're starting off with this one from the World section of the Los Angeles Times from Monday, February 26, 2024. Netanyahu says any deal would only delay attack. Leader confirms that a ceasefire agreement is in the works, but insists that the Rafa offensive will happen. By Tia Goldenberg, Wafa Sharafa, and Sami Magdi. Tel Aviv. An Israeli military offensive in the southernmost city of Rafa could be delayed somewhat if a deal for a weeks-long ceasefire between Israel and the Hamas militant group is reached, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Sunday, while claiming that total victory in Gaza is weeks away once the attacks begin. Netanyahu confirmed to CBS that a deal is in the works, with no details. Talks resumed Sunday in Qatar, Egypt's state-run Al-Qahira TV reported, uh, citing an Egyptian official as saying, Further discussions would allow in would follow in Cairo with the aim of achieving a, the ceasefire and release of dozens of hostages held in Gaza, as well as Palestinians imprisoned by Israel. Meanwhile, Israel is nearing approval of plans to expand its assault into Rafah on the Gaza-Egypt border, where more than half the besieged territory's population of 2.3 million have sought refuge in squalid tent camps, packed apartments, and overflowing shelters. The humanitarian groups warned of a catastrophe with Rafah, the main entry point for aid. The U.S. and other allies have said Israel must avoid harming civilians. Netanyahu has said he'll convene the wartime cabinet this week to approve plans that he says will include the evacuation of civilians. Once we begin the Rafah operation, the intense phase of the fighting is weeks away from completion. Not months, he told CBS. If we don't have a deal, we'll do it anyway. It has to be done because total victory is our goal, and total victory is within reach. He said that four of the six remaining Hamas battalions are concentrated in Rafah. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told NBC that President Biden hadn't been briefed on the Rafah plan and said, We believe that this operation should not go forward until or unless we see a plan to protect civilians. Heavy fighting continued at parts of the northern Gaza Strip, the first target of the Israeli offensive, where the extent of the destruction is staggering. We're trapped, unable to move because of the heavy bombardment, Gaza City resident Ayman Abu Awad said. He said starving residents have been forced to eat animal fodder and to search for food in demolished buildings. Northern Gaza has been largely cut off from most aid deliveries since the start of the war. In nearby Jabalia, 
market vendor Um Ayad showed off a leafy weed that people pick from the harsh, dry soil and eat. We have to feed the children, he said. They keep screaming they want food. We cannot find food. We don't know what to do. Philippe Lazaridi, Commissioner General of the United Nations Agency for Palestinians, said they haven't been able to deliver food to northern Gaza since January 23rd, adding on X, formerly Twitter, that our calls to send food aid have been denied. Israel said that 245 trucks of aid entered Gaza on Sunday, less than a half of the amount that entered daily before the war. A senior official from Egypt, which along with Qatar is a mediator between Israel and the Hamas militant group, said Saturday that the draft ceasefire deal includes the release of up to 40 women and older hostages in return for up to 300 Palestinian prisoners, mostly women, children, teens, and older people. The Egyptian official, speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss the negotiations, said the proposed six-week pause in fighting would include allowing hundreds of trucks to bring desperately needed aid to into Gaza every day, including the North. He said both sides agreed to continue negotiations during the pause for further releases and a permanent ceasefire. Negotiators faced, faced an unofficial deadline of the start of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan around March 10. Hamas says it has not been involved in the latest proposal developed by the United States, Egypt, and Qatar but it has said it will not release all of the remaining hostages until Israel withdraws its forces from the territory and releases hundreds of Palestinian prisoners, including senior militants, conditions Netanyahu has rejected. But an earlier Hamas proposal outlined an initial phase that resembles the reported draft agreement indicating the two sides might be able to converge. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant on Sunday made clear that a ceasefire deal for Gaza wouldn't affect the military's daily low-level clashes with the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah, a Hamas ally. Israel declared war after the October 7 Hamas attack on southern Israel, in which militants killed about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and took around 240 hostages. More than 100 hostages were released in a ceasefire and exchange deal in November. Around 130 remain in captivity, a fourth of whom are believed to be dead. Families of the hostages have followed the negotiations with hope and anguish. It feels like Schindler's list. Will he be on the list or not? Shelley Shem Tob, the mother of Omer, 21, who was held captive, told the Israeli army radio of her son's chances of being freed at an emerging deal. Israel responded to the October 7 attack with a massive air and ground offensive that has driven about 80% of Gaza's population from their homes, putting hundreds of thousands at risk of starvation and exposure to infectious diseases. The health ministry in, in Hamas-ruled Gaza said 29,692 Palestinians have been killed since the start of the war, two-thirds of them women and children. The ministry's death toll doesn't distinguish between civilians and combatants. Israel says its troops have killed more than 10,000 militants without providing evidence. The war has devastated the territory's health sector, with fewer than half of hospitals even partially functioning as scores are killed each day in Israeli bombardments. At the Emeritus Hospital in Rafah, three to four newborns are placed in each of its 20 incubators, which are designed for just one. Dr. Amal Ismail said two to three newborns die in a single shift, in part because many of their families live in tents in rainy cold weather. Before the war, 
one or two newborns in incubators there died per month. No matter how much we work with them, it is all wasted, she said. There is no health improvement because of the conditions of living in a tent. That was Netanyahu says any deal would only delay attack by Tia Goldenberg, Wafa Sharafa, and Sammy Magdi from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 26, 2024. Goldenberg, Sharafa, and Magdi write for the Associated Press and reported from Tel Aviv, Rafa, and Cairo, respectively. Well, let's go on to some other international news here from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, February 28, 2024. Zelensky visits Saudis to push for peace plan. Ukraine's president speaks with the crown prince who has sought to position himself as a mediator from the Associated Press. Dubai. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky arrived in Saudi Arabia on Tuesday and met the kingdom's powerful crown prince to push for a peace plan and the return of prisoners of war from Russia. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has sought to position himself as a sought to, uh, as a potential mediator to end the war between Russia and Ukraine, even as Riyadh remains closely aligned with Russia on energy policies through the OPEC plus group of countries. The day before, the prince hosted Vyacheslav Volodin, the chairman of Russia's Duma, the lower house of its parliament, and a host of other Russian officials. Zelensky's trip came as Kiev's forces were slowly being pushed back in eastern Ukraine. Russia has gained the initiative due to its big advantage in troop numbers and weapons supplies, military analysts say, as Kiev waits for news of new provisions from Western allies. The Ukrainian military said Tuesday that it withdrew its forces from two more villages near Avdivka in the eastern Donetsk region after intense overnight fighting according to a Ukrainian army spokesman. Zelensky said in a message on X that Ukraine continues to rely on Saudi Arabia's ongoing active support in pushing forward with what has been described as a peace formula to end the war, which marked its second anniversary over the weekend. The Ukrainian president has presented a 10-point peace formula that, among other things, seeks the expulsion of all Russian forces from Ukraine and accountability for war crimes at a time when the two sides are fighting from largely static positions along a roughly 930-mile front line. Such ideas are rejected out of hand by Moscow. The second topic is the return of POWs and deportees, Zelensky wrote. The kingdom's leadership has already contributed to the release of our people. I am confident that this meeting will also yield results. He also said economic cooperation would be discussed. The state-run Saudi press agency said that Zelensky arrived at Riyadh's King Khalid International Airport and was met by government officials. Later videos showed Zelensky along with top officials in his government meeting with the smiling Mohammed. The Saudi minister was also on hand. Videos showed the prince and Zelensky, both of whom speak English, talking without interpreters in a vast hall at a palace. Over the last several years, Mohammed has reached a detente with Iran, pursued a peace deal with Yemen's Houthi rebels, and offered himself as a leader in other global crises. That's after facing widespread international condemnation for the Saudi-led war in Yemen and the 2018 killing of Washington Post columnist Jamal 
Khashoggi, which U.S. intelligence agencies concluded was carried out on his orders. That was Zelensky visits Saudis to push for a peace plan from the Associated Press, added the World Section of the Los Angeles Times Wednesday, February 28, 2024. Okay, and back here at home to the United States, we have this from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times Thursday, February 29, 2024. Yellen Beck's use of Russia's holdings. Treasury Secretary calls for liquidating $300 billion in frozen funds to aid Ukraine in war and rebuilding from the Associated Press. Washington. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen has offered her strongest public support yet for the idea of liquidating roughly $300 billion in frozen Russian central bank assets and using them for Ukraine's long-term reconstruction. It is necessary and urgent for our coalition to find a way to unlock the value of these immobilized assets to support Ukraine's continued resistance and long-term reconstruction, Yellen said in remarks in San Paulo, Brazil, where a group of 20 finance ministers and central bank governors are meeting this week. I believe there is a strong international law, economic and moral case for moving forward, she said. This would be a uh, decisive response to Russia's unprecedented threat to global stability. The United States and its allies froze hundreds of billions of dollars in Russian foreign holdings in retaliation from Moscow's invasion on Ukraine. Those billions have been sitting untapped as the war grinds on, now in its third year, while officials from multiple countries have debated the legality of sending the money to Ukraine. More than two-thirds of Russia's immobilized central bank funds are located in the European Union. Using the assets to help Ukraine would make clear that Russia cannot win by prolonging the war and would decentivize it to come to the table to negotiate a just peace with Ukraine, Yellen said. The idea of using Russia's frozen assets has gained traction lately as continued Allied funding for Ukraine becomes more uncertain and the U.S. Congress is in a stalemate over providing more support. But there are trade-offs since the weaponization of global finance could harm the U.S. dollar's standing as the world's dominant currency. Yellen said Tuesday that it is extremely unlikely that tapping the frozen funds would harm the dollar's standing in the global economy, especially given the uniqueness of the situation where Russia is brazenly violating international norms. Realistically, there are not alternatives to the dollar, euro, and yen. John F. Kirby, President Biden's national security spokesman, said, We still believe Russia needs to be responsible for the damage brought onto Ukraine by exploring the option of using those frozen assets. We still need more legislative authorities from Congress to spend and immobilized funds. To spend the immobilized funds, Kirby said, and we have to have our coalition partners to come along with us. Bipartisan legislation circulating in Washington called the Rebuilding Economic Prosperity and Opportunity for Ukrainians Act would use the confiscated central bank assets and other Russian sovereign holdings for Ukraine. Leading lawmakers had tried to push it as a way to help provide Ukraine aid, but it has since not moved forward. This month, the EU passed a law to set aside windfall profits generated from frozen Russian central bank assets. Yellen calls that an action I fully endorse. Brazil this month kicked off its presidency of the group, 20, group of 20 nations that make up the world's biggest economies with finance ministers meeting this week. Topics for discussion included poverty alleviation, climate change, 
and the wars in the Gaza Strip and in Ukraine. G20 leaders are scheduled together at a November 18th to 19th summit in Rio de Janeiro. That was Yellen Betts' use of Russia's holdings from the Associated Press out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 29, 2024. And now for something here at home. Uh, this is from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 29, 2024. Stop the hate. Students walk out over anti-Semitism. Rally calls out incidents at Woodland Hills campus. One girl describes being pushed and punched by a fellow pupil by Summer Lynn. Students at El Camino Real Charter High School in Woodland Hills staged a walkout Tuesday to protest recent anti-Semitic incidents on campus. The action, which was organized by a group of seniors, including, included students holding up Israeli flags and signs that read, Stop the Hate. Daniel Eshed, a ninth grader at the charter school within the Los Angeles Unified School District, told KTLA Channel 5 that a fellow classmate screamed anti-Semitic comments at her and then attacked her. He called me a dirty Jew and then had said something out of defense, Danielle told the station. He said he was going to beat me up and I didn't believe him until he got up, pushed me, and started punching me repeatedly in the neck and back. David Husey, the school's executive director, told KBC, KBC TV Channel 7 that the student has been disciplined but didn't elaborate on details. One is addressing the issues. Maybe some students don't know what they're saying and what the impacts are. So it's educating those students and then reassuring the other students that they are safe at this school, Hussey said. Uh, uh, Hussey didn't immediately respond to a request for comment uh, Wednesday morning. Danielle's father also spoke at the Tuesday rally in support of his daughter, according to KCBS TV Channel 2. The school thinks that he has more rights than my daughter for protection, Eden Eshed said. He has rights to be educated, but my daughter doesn't have the right doesn't have the rights for her safety. Students also said that notes have been passed around in class about Hitler and that the curriculum around World War II is insensitive, according to KTLA. After the Israel-Hamas war broke out in October, Jewish and Muslim parents have called on the Los Angeles Unified School District Board to help prevent hate speech, discrimination, and threats on local campuses. Parents said there has been a rise in bullying in and insensitivity at the schools ever since the war began. That was Stop the Hate, Students Walk Out Over Anti-Semitism by Summer Lynn from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 29, 2024. Here's another thing. From the city and state section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 1st, 2024, Israeli speakers shut down at Berkeley. Jewish students' groups' event is evacuated as protesters break into the venue by Salvador Hernandez. UC Berkeley police evacuated a private event organized by Jewish student groups after pro-Palestinian demonstrators broke open a door to the building and shattered a window. At one point, about 200 protesters gathered outside the event site, Zellerbach Playhouse, holding up signs that read, Stop the Genocide, and at times chanting, Long Live the Intifada, Videos posted on social media showed. University officials called Monday's incident appalling and said police had to cancel the event and escort students to safety because of the number of demonstrators and the threat of violence. We have to make that choice. We had to make that choice between doing what was necessary to let the event go on or protecting the people in the building, said university spokesperson Dan Mogolov. 
and a message sent to university staff and students Tuesday afternoon, UC Berkeley Chancellor Carol Crist and Provost Benjamin E. Hermalin called the incident an attack on the fundamental values of the university. The featured speaker at the event was Ron Bar Yoshavat, an Israeli attorney and former member of the Israeli military. It was organized by Students Support for Israel at Berkeley, Bears for Israel and Berkeley Tikva, said Vida K. Fanfar, co-president of Berkeley Tikva. Messages to Students Support Israel and Bears for Israel seeking comment were not immediately returned. Since the October 7 attack by Hamas in Israel and subsequent attacks by the Israeli military in Gaza, the university has sent multiple protests has seen multiple protests on its campus. But Mogilev said Monday's incident was unlike past incidents. We've had other demonstrators, but not who were breaking down doors and windows, he said. Social media posts encouraging demonstrators to show up to the campus helped increase the turnout outside the event. Mogilev declined to give specific numbers, but said police dispatched more, more officers Monday night than it had to any other protest on campus since October 7. School officials' concerns were heightened when they became aware of a social media post by Bears for Palestine, a group on campus calling for protesters to shut it down. In the post, the group claimed Bar Yoshafat was invited to spread settler colonial Zionist propaganda about the very genocide he has participated in and called demonstrators to show up by 6 p.m. Messages to the group seeking comment were not immediately returned. In social media posts, the group noted when the event was moved from one location to Zellerbach Playhouse and posted video of demonstrators marching toward the building chanting, Yoshavat, you can't hide. Concerned by the social media protests calling for a pr- protest, K. Fanfar said the student organizations met with university administrators before the event and asked for additional support and security. K. Fanfar, a senior, said she was sitting outside the building and tasked with checking in attendees to the event when she saw a crowd of about 200 protesters headed her way. I was very nervous, she said, just seeing this huge crowd of people yelling and screaming. As protesters reached the building and attempted to enter, police told K. Fanfar to close her laptop and go inside, she said. There was split flying there was spit flying all over the place, people yelling in my face and people videotaping, she said, and at that point I was getting swallowed by a mob and not being effective at my job. Other videos on social media showed protesters banging on closed glass doors. K. Fanfar said some protesters gained entry to the building when someone opened a side door for students who were helping organize this event. When she tried to close the door, she said some of the protesters pulled it open, yanked her arm, and hurting her wrist. In one video, UC Berkeley Police Chief Yogananda Pittman is seen taking the microphone in a theater and evacuating the room. We are asking all persons to leave, she says. The theater appeared mostly empty. In the statement to the university, Chris and Hermalan confirmed the building was evacuated to protect the speaker and the members of the audience. We want to express our deep remorse and sympathy to those students and members of the public who were in the building fearing for their safety, the statement read. We deeply respect the right to protest and as intrinsic to the value of a democracy at an institution of higher education. 
yet we cannot ignore the protest activity that interferes with the rights of others to hear and or express perspectives of their choosing. We cannot allow the use or threat or force to violate the First Amendment rights of a speaker, no matter how much we might disagree with their views. School officials said no one was treated for injuries at the scene and no arrests were made. Kifanfar said she and other students believe Bears for Palestine bore responsibility because of its call to action. She said she filed a police report and there have been complaints filed with the university. She said she's hoping Monday's incident will shed light on some of the concerns Jewish students have. I think that Jewish students that are sometimes misunderstood, and when a Jewish student says, I'm fearing for my safety, and that's, that it's often misinterpreted as, I don't like the activism that's happening, she said. If the student is feeling unsafe, that needs to be addressed. That was Israeli speaker is shut down at Berkeley by Salvador Hernandez from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 1st, 2024. Right, and here is something from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 28, 2024, something a little different. Iger's foe tries to set a better mousetrap. For the second time in a year, activist investor Nelson Peltz is battling CEO to shake up Disney by Stacey Perman. This month, after Walt Disney Company reported stronger than expected earnings, it appeared that the promise of Bob Iger's return as chief executive might finally be on track to put the Magic Kingdom back to put the magic back into the kingdom. After a year that saw the entertainment giant buffeted by Hollywood strikes, major layoffs, and stock price stumbles, the earnings report and several headline-making announcements sent Disney's shares soaring, achieving the stock's best day on Wall Street in three years. The strong showing also appeared to deflate activist investor Nelson Peltz's efforts to mount a boardroom shakeup at Disney's annual shareholder meeting in April. But Peltz, 81, who was once described as having a piratical charm and a velvet glove, refused to back down. Within days, the publicistic investor was throwing shade on Iger and Disney's board and criticizing their plans to move the company forward, vowing to continue its proxy fight against Disney, his second in less than a year. These pronouncements, this reminds me of a politician making Election Day announcements versus State of the Union speeches. Uh, a State of the Union is what I want to hear about, not Election Day promises, he said during an appearance on CNBC's Money Movers. For those who know Peltz, the CEO and founding partner of Tryon Partners, this is more than just showmanship. The billionaire investor has a history of waging vitriolic battles with major companies. As he has said, if we can't agree on the problem, we have to go to war. His strategy of demanding board seats and implementing change has generated a raft of big wins. But with Iger having regained trust with many shareholders, Peltz's bet on Disney is looking increasingly risky. Whether his fight with the Mouse House will end in a spellbinding triumph or an embarrassing failure, Peltz has dug in. He now holds a weakened hand, and this could end up being one of his rare misfires. Investors and activists have been unusually blunt about Peltz's proxy fight, calling it quixotic. I see no indication of widespread shareholder support for what he's doing, said Neil Minot, a shareholder rights activist and vice chair of Value Edge Advisors. The first thing you have to do is you've got to find a target that everybody's mad at 
and you just don't have enough people that are mad at Disney. Pelt, through his representatives, declined to comment. A spokesperson for Disney declined to comment beyond the company's proxy statement. Pelt is among a powerful cadre of activist shareholders, a class that includes Carl Icahn, Bill Ackman, Dan Loeb, and Paul Singer, who have forced companies to change through public challenges backed, uh, backed up by sizable stakes in them. While these fights have become something like an elegant cage match, they have also become a fundamental part of the corporate landscape, changing the ways in which boards interact with shareholders. Last year, activists launched 183 campaigns, up 21% from the previous year, according to the Lazard Annual Review of Shareholder Activists. In North America, they won 88 board seats through proxy fights. Peltz eschews the moniker activist investor, and unlike some of his cohorts, he tends to nominate himself for a board seat. He's known for taking long-term positions, working to revitalize companies rather than leverage them up or sell them for parts. People talk about him as a corporate raider. He's not a corporate raider like Carl Icahn, said Los Angeles investor and dealer maker Lloyd Grief. I think he's much more experienced in running companies. A lot of these guys were financial engineers and they would come into a company and immediately look at how, how do we break this company up to maximize value. With a helmet of white hair and Natalie dress, Peltz retains traces of his Brooklyn childhood, chiefly his accent, but also his forthright pull-no-punches style. In 1962, bored, he dropped out of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and headed to Maine to be a ski bum. However, when the snow melted in the spring, he returned home to work as a truck driver at his family's business. A, a, a. Peltz and Sons, whose wholesome pro, uh, produce distribution business founded by his grandfather in 1896 that expanded into frozen foods. Nelson Peltz earned $100 a week. His plan was to save enough for gas money to move to Oregon to teach summer race camp. Peltz never made it. Working for the business, he noticed numerous missed opportunities and mistakes. When he mentioned his observations to his father, the elder Peltz responded, Why don't you stay for a year and address them? he told students at the University of Miami Business School. Over the next 15 years, the younger Peltz grew the business. He acquired other companies, built a sales force, and brought in his older, older brother, Robert, and a business partner, Peter May. The company, now called Flagstaff Food Service, went from annual sales of $2 million to $150 million and became the largest food distributor in nor the Northeast. In 1971, the company went public. It was sold eight years later. While Peltz was building up his family business, he also began a small investment fund using the money from his bar mitzvah and funds from family and friends. By the 1980s, Peltz amassed a multi-million dollar fortune through a number of leveraged buyouts financed by junk bonds sold by Michael Milken. In 1983, along with his partner May, Peltz bought a stake in Triangle Industries, becoming its CEO and making it the world's largest packaging company. He sold it five years later for nearly a billion dollars to French conglomerate Pecini. Peltz's early successes led to a string of even bigger and more audacious wins. His most celebrated deal was the $300 million acquisition of the flailing iced tea brand Snapple from Quaker in 1997. Within three years, 
he brought back its fizzy appeal and sold it for more than a billion dollars to the Cadbury Schweppes. To Cadbury Schweppes, the deal became the subject of a Harvard Business School case and uh, Harvard Business School case study and earned Peltz a reputation as one of America's princely turnaround kings. In 2005, it founded Tryon Fund Management, an alternative investment management firm, with May and Edward Garden, his son-in-law. Tryon brought,、uh, bought significant stock positions in companies such as Heinz, Wendy's, and Dupont, and demanded board seats and proposed significant changes, often clashing with their CEOs. I like fixing things, and I like growing things. Peltz once explained to Bloomberg Wealth, adding, "We wouldn't be there." If they weren't really, if they're really doing well, Peltz became known as an operational activist who wasn't afraid to take on large-cap, publicly traded corporations, and he wasn't one to back away from a fight. He had an intense persistence and attention to detail, and often became a lightning rod, if not an unwelcome change agent for the companies in his sights. When Peltz took on the H. J. Heinz Company in 2006. The corporation rebuffed Peltz's turnaround plan. He doesn't understand our business. Its chief executive William Johnson told the New York Times and cautioned that if he got on board, you're going to have a destabilizing situation. Peltz prevailed, winning a pair of board seats, and Johnson did an about face. Later, saying he was very informed, highly focused, and an engaged director. Over the next seven years, Heinz's stock price increased 61 percent. In 2013. The company was acquired by Berkshire Hathaway and 3G Capital in a deal valued at $28 billion. Two years later, it merged with Kraft Foods. Peltz later was invited to join the board of Mondelez International, a global snack business. He provoked a management. He provoked management and pushed the other directors to ask hard questions. Said Mondelez CEO Dirk Van Dirk Van Der Put. You might not like it. But overall, it was good for the well-being of the company. Today, Tryon has an 8.5 billion dollars in assets under management, and Peltz's net worth is estimated to be 1.5 billion, according to Forbes. Outside of the boardroom, Peltz lives large. He married his third wife, former model Claudia Ney Hefner, in 1985. They have eight children in addition to the two he had with his first wife. The couple split their time between two mega mansions: Mont Sorel, a sprawling waterfront estate in Palm Beach, Florida, and High Winds, set on 130 acres in Bedford, New York, from which Peltz once commuted to his Manhattan office in a Sikorsky helicopter. But his neighbors complained about the noise, and the town took him to court. It was a rare defeat for Peltz, who lost the five-year legal battle. Until last year. Peltz's battles were largely relegated to the financial press. Then he sued the Florida wedding planners, who were hired to handle the nuptials of his daughter Nicola, an actor who married Brooklyn Beckham, the son of British footballer David Beckham, and his wife, former Spice Girl and fashion designer Victoria Beckham, in April 2022. In legal filings, Peltz said he fired the planners after they failed to deliver on their contractual obligations and did not return his $159,000 deposit. He said the planners hoodwinked him, and he accused them of falsely portraying Nicola in an extremely negative light to entice the media. 
Before the parties eventually settled, the wedding planners filed a 181-page uh, countersuit for breach of contract, calling Peltz a bully billionaire and making him a target of the tabloid press. Peltz launched his first proxy campaign against Disney in January 2023, after an unsuccessful attempt to gain a board on the seat the previous year. The company's shared price was languishing, and by September, it had hit an eight-year low, falling below $80. Tryon owned about 9.4 million shares worth some $900 million. That number later swelled to 32 million shares, valued at $3.6 billion. Peltz was unsparing in his criticism, calling out Disney's over-the-top compensation practices, failure to implement a succession plan, in July, the board extended Iger's contract for two more years until 2026 and weak corporate governance. He highlighted self-inflicted wounds, such as the $71.3 billion acquisition of 21st Century Fox in 2019 and a string of box office bombs in the entertainment giant's money-losing streaming business. Disney's recent performance reflects the hard truth that it is a company in crisis to try and in an ex excoriating statement. With uh, last, uh, last February, when the company announced plans to eliminate 7,000 jobs slash $5.5 billion from its budget and restore dividends, Peltz dropped his demands. With characteristic hubris, he declared his proxy war was over and took a victory lap. If a guy is going to do everything you wanted him to do, where's the argument, he told Fortune. During the following months, however, as Disney's stock prices stalled, so did Tryon's confidence in the company's ability to get on the right path. Last fall, Peltz fired off his latest proxy salvo, this time agitating for multiple board seats, one for himself and another for Jay Rasulo, a former Disney chief financial officer. It's deja vu all over again, Tryon said in a statement. We saw this movie last year and we didn't like the ending. For years, Peltz's shareholder activism was restricted mostly to shaking up the boardrooms of American corporations with big consumer brands like Wendy's, Heinz, and DuPont that sold tangible products like hamburgers, ketchup, and chemicals, not dreams. His detractors say Peltz's war with Disney is misguided. I don't think that anything in his track record indicates that he can come up with a good strategy for this particular company, said Minnow. He's an expert in balance sheets, but I don't know that in a company like Disney, that's what you need. He's offered no ideas for the Disney strat strategic situation because he has no ideas and he has no background in media, said Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, a, a founder of Yale's Chief Executive Leadership Institute. He's an industrial consumer goods guy with no media, technology, or media marketing background. Is much the same argument that Disney itself has made in its rebuffs of Peltz. Peltz has not actually presented a single strat strategic idea, said the company in a letter to shareholders, noting that his background in consumer goods did not align with a business that is primarily driven by creative talent and focused on delivering uniquely memorable cu uh, customer experiences. But Peltz has countered, at least in broad strokes, that the company is underperforming and that he wants to work with the board and management to set ambitious but achievable targets to improve corporate governance, streaming, ESPN, and the movie studios, creativity, cr uh, creativity and the parks and experiences. 
Nelson knows brands and Disney is ultimately a company of brands, said someone familiar with Tryon was not authorized to comment publicly. And Jay Rasulo spent three decades there in a variety of roles. He was CFO during a time when stock price uh, increased by more than 250%, and the company paid more than $8 billion in dividends. In the coming weeks, Tryon is expected to make public its white paper, the firm's detailed analysis outlining Peltz's case for Disney. In the meantime, Peltz has found support in other influential quarters. Tryon's website has a page of showcasing the testimonials of 11 CEOs of companies the firm has invested in or engaged in proxy fights with, including those of Procter & Gamble and DuPont. In October, former Marvel Entertainment chairman Isaac Ike Perlmutter joined forces with Peltz, entrusting his Disney shares to Tryon, hence the massive bump to 32 million shares last fall. Perlmutter was dismissed from his role at Marvel last March as part of a larger restructuring. Disney has claimed that the former executive has a personal agenda against Iger. Perlmutter did not respond to requests for comment. More recently, Peltz's efforts were buttressed by Elon Musk, another bete noir of Disney. In January, Musk, who has bitterly criticized Disney for pulling his at its advertising from the social media platform X, formerly Twitter, wrote on the site, Brutal track record. Shareholders have been incredibly poorly served by the at Disney board. The following month, Musk appeared on the red carpet with Peltz in Los Angeles for the film premiere of Lola, the directorial debut of Peltz's daughter, Nicola Peltz Beckham, who also stars in the film. Musk then kicked his own, own, kicked his own feud with Disney up a notch, offering to help pay legal fees for those suing the company for discrimination. With the April shareholder meeting fast approaching, things are getting heated. In February, a group representing Blackwell's Capital tweeted out part of Wendy's 2023 proxy statement that showed Peltz, a board member, billed the company nearly $600,000 for his personal security, writing, Who knew that hamburgers could be so dangerous? Is this how Peltz plans to perform for at Disney shareholders? Peltz, however, remains resolute and unmoved. On Valentine's Day, his firm sent shareholders a new fight letter. It was illustrated with an unflattering cartoon of Disney's board throwing spaghetti at a wall. That was Iger's Foe Tries to Set a Better Mousetrap by Stacey Perman from the Los Angeles Times Wednesday, February 28, 2024. Time staff writer Meg James contributed to this report. On to some entertainment news now from the Los Angeles Times calendar section for Sunday, February 25, 2024. The year that won't leave us alone. Eric Klinenberg examines the long breach of 2020 via New York by Stuart Miller. Eric Klinenberg wants you to remember what was collectively the worst year of our lives. But it doesn't just want you to recall 2020, the pandemic with its lockdown and rising death toll, the attempt at a racial reckoning after George Floyd's murder, and the presidential election where the loser refused to accept reality. He wants you to re-examine it. This story is not over, he said. We are all living through a long 2020. Klinenberg knows a litany of facts, and a political recounting uh, would turn readers off. His new book, 2020, One City, Seven People, and the Year Everything Changed, has plenty of statistics and scope and a scope wide enough to examine the way countries around the world 
dealt with COVID-19, but the subtle makes his in intimate approach clear. I want to be the soul of the book. I want the soul of the book to be these people, he said by video from his Manhattan apartment. All seven were also in New York, also New Yorkers. It's an invitation to reconsider your own experience and the experience of people you love through their lens, which can help all of us make sense of what happened. His subjects include Sophia Zayas, a Puerto Rican living in the Bronx who worked for Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration and was tasked with encouraging the community to get vaccinated, even though Zayas herself was initially skeptical. People that know the history of the U.S. experimenting on people of color and treating the baddie, Klinenberg says, noting that while Zayas eventually came, out, came around on vaccines, we can't uh, paper over that. At the other end of the city and the political spectrum is bar owner, owner Daniel Presti, a Staten Island Republican who becomes a hero to the far right when he refused to comply with restaurant closure, uh, closure orders or mask mandates. I treat him sympathetically, Klinenberg says, even though Presti eventually stopped talking to him. I wanted readers to understand where people in a situation are coming from so that we can make sense of this incredible change in American civic life. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. Question. I can easily see this book being invaluable in the future, future but why is it important now for all of us to, who just lived through 2020? Answer. So much was happening to us in real time, it was impossible to process it. We've been shaped by 2020 in ways we haven't appreciated. And it feels like there's an urgency to it. Trump was a big part of the reason that the United States fared so poorly in the pandemic. One reason Trump has retained so much popularity is because we've all repressed that. We've all repressed what happened in 2020. Sometimes he says, are you better off now than you were five years ago? It's like a pilot who says, did you see that takeoff? It was fantastic. Wasn't it exhilarating to be at 35,000 feet? That whole crash landing where half the people on the plane died? Forget that part. We're a country full of people who forgot about the crash landing, and it's my belief that the crash landing was not inevitable. In previous crises, societies around the world learned lessons and worked hard to make things better before the next disaster. In the United States, we've become more skeptical of government and all of all vaccines, and we're cutting funding off for key public health programs. And now we have a prominent political officials on the right telling a revisionist history. There's a persuasive argument that we are less prepared, more vulnerable to the next big pandemic than we were before 2020. A lot of other societies did, uh, did not crash. Australia, which had a right-wing prime minister who was a science denier, had a negative excess death rate in 2020. So nothing was inevitable in the American experience. As you figure out who to vote for in 2024, who we trust to lead us through difficult times, we need to be looking at what happened to us when everything was up for grabs and not pretend it didn't exist. I think now the time is right. Question. Was it difficult spending three years reliving the worst year of our lives? Answer. That was a way for me to organize my anxieties rather than just letting my mind wander and spin uncontrollably. Waking me up at three in the morning. In that sense, this project has become extremely healthy. I've spent my career studying crises. Crises reveal things. We see who we are, we value what we value and whose, whose lives matter. The disaster is for a sociologist, sociologist what a particular uh, accelerator is for a physicist. 
It allows you to see things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see. So it's really worthwhile to look closely when every, everyone else is running away. But it's definitely hard. Question. You analyzed nearly 18,000 social media posts about COVID-19. What did you learn that you couldn't have guessed already? Answer. It was striking just to see how rich a world someone could live in online while still only getting one side of the story. And once you immerse yourself in the online universe of a person who sees things differently than you, you realize it's very difficult for them to come around to another point of view. The echo chamber chambers are real. It really solidified for me the extent to which people were experiencing different pandemics based not only on where they live, lived, but also on where they clicked. I wanted the book to illustrate why America grew so divided during this difficult year. We really didn't share the year. We really did live uh, different catastrophes. Question. Your book makes clear how badly America failed the poor and people of color. Answer. That's such an important point for me. Crises reveal things. We called some people essential workers. It wasn't the bankers, the lawyers, or even the NBA players. It was healthcare workers, of course, and all these low-wage workers. You think essential is an honorific that would come with respect and resources, guarantees and healthcare and PPP and PPE and scholarships and all kinds of support. But when we called them essential, what we were really doing was deeming them expendable. It meant we don't really mind if you die. We did come to the edge of this more precipice in 2020 when it felt for a moment like we were about to make this breakthrough valuing and recognizing this con the contributions of essential workers. We did things like the Child Poverty Reduction Act, which brought more kids out of poverty than ever before in American history. But as soon as things got a little better, we said, nah, forget about it, let's go back. And we didn't make sure that everybody had childcare, and we didn't fix the nursing homes. That's a reason why a lot of Americans feel betrayed. We have not lived up to our principles as a society. Question, that's depressing. Answer. Beyond all things that went wrong, beautiful things happened. I wrote about Nuala O. Doherty, who started this network in Queens that fed tons of thousands of people and stands as a symbol for this kind of grassroots effort that ordinary people made to take care of each other. And after the pandemic, she transformed her basement into the Jackson Heights Immigration Center. They've helped 2,000 immigrants, fa immigrant families file asylum paperwork and became this incredible neighborhood resource for people from all over the region who need local help. All across America, people who started working together during COVID have reassembled and adapted their mission to deal with the problems of 2024. So there's this new informal civic infrastructure rising. With this election coming, it's important to see deep this deeply American alternative, bottom-up approach to help each other out. It still feels to me like everything's up for grabs, and we're the people who are going to decide the fate of the country. That was The Year That Won't Leave Us Alone by Stuart Miller, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 25th, 2024. All right, on to some entertainment news. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, February 27, 2024. Oppenheimer's Dominance Continues by Glenn Whip. Christopher Nolan's big canvas biopic Oppenheimer 
won the Producers Guild of America's Top Honors Sunday night, a day after it, it took the Ensemble Prize at the Screen Actors Guild Awards. Nolan won the Directors Guild of America's Feature Film Directing Award two weeks ago. Oppenheimer thus became the 11th movie to sweep the PGA, DGA, and SAG Awards, establishing it as the overwhelming favorite to win the Best Picture Oscar on March 10. Of the 10 previous films to hit that award season trifecta, a list that includes No Country for Old Men, Argo, and the last two Best Picture, Picture winners, Coda, and Everywhere, Every, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, only one, Apollo 13, failed to win the Oscar. Emma Thomas, who has produced all of Nolan's films, accepted the honor on stage with fellow producer Charles Roven and Nolan, her husband, whom she called the best producing partner you could hope for. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which won seven awards last weekend at the Animation Celebration uh, Annie Awards, took the PGA's Animated Theatrical Feature Prize. American Symphony. Matthew Hyman's look at musician John Batiste trying to realize a professional dream uh, while his wife, author Suleika Jarad, battles leukemia, won the Documentary Award. The win was a bit of an upset, but still less surprising than the film's omission from the Oscars documentary feature category. The last PGA documentary winner that wasn't nominated at the Oscars was 2019's Apollo 11. On the TV side, The Bear picked up another prize winning the Danny Thomas Award for Outstanding Producer of Episodic Television, Comedy, following honors at the Emmys and the SAG Awards. Last week tonight, another Emmy perennial took the Live Entertainment Variety Sketch Stand-Up and Talk Award. Beef, which has vacuumed up nearly every limited series prize in recent weeks, followed suit with the PGA. Same with Succession for TV Series Drama. RuPaul's Drag Race won for Game and Competition TV, and Welcome to Wrexham prevailed for Nonfiction TV. The award for televised or streaming movie went to Black Mirror Beyond the Sea. Martin Scorsese, whose latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon, earned a PGA nomination, received the David O. Selznick Achievement Award. After a Guillermo del Toro introduction, Scorsese took the stage to a long-standing ovation and the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter, the song he used in Goodfellas Casino, and The Departed. Scorsese regaled the audience with memories of attending the Producers Guild Awards in 1965 when he won Best Student Film for It's Not Just You, Murray, which he made while attending New York University. Alfred Hitchcock accepted a career award that night, and Scorsese recalled some of the advice he imparted. He said, First, when you receive such an award, you want to pinch yourself to make sure it isn't being made posthumously, Scorsese remembered. Gail Berman received the Norman... Lear Achievement Award in television following a warm introduction from Sarah Michelle Gellar, star of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which Berman Executive produced. Not a single person on this earth was interested in buying that television show, but I just couldn't ignore my gut that there was something unique there, Berman said on stage, recalling Buffy. Charles D. King, a former WME partner and founder of the multi-platform media company Macro, was given the Milestone Award, becoming the first black person to receive the honor. Filmmaker Ryan Coogler said of King, to know him is to know he's a rock. Anything he has in his mind, he's going to will it to exist. I stand on the shoulders of all the incredible producers, executives, my parents, 
and our ancestors who kicked down doors, made sacrifices, and blazed a trail for me to be able to do what I'm blessed to do, King said, accepting the honor. King's Macro, along with Bloomhouse, Legendary, and Berlanti Productions, were announced as the first companies to sign onto a PGA initiative unveiled during the ceremony to secure health benefits for qualified producers working full-time in film and television. Producers are the only union members on film sets without guaranteed health care. Until now, PGA President Stephanie Allain said, standing alongside co-president Donald Ledeline. That was Oppenheimer's Dominance Continues by Glenn Whip from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, February 27, 2024. We now have a movie review from the same calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 27, 2024. Ethan Cohn goes on in on trashy fun in female-driven crime caper. Lesbian road trip comedy Drive Away Dolls Moves Too Fast to Care About Plot by Katie Walsh. It's fascinating that Ethan Cohen and Trisha Cook, longtime filmmaking collaborators and spouses, and the creative team behind the exploitation flick Drive Away Dolls have repeatedly and lovingly described their new film as trashy in interviews. It's a way of nodding to influences like the Pope of Trash himself, John Waters, and titillating B-movie king Russ Meyer. Or perhaps it's a way to get ahead of it, get ahead of and away from certain expectations tied to Cohen and his former filmmaking partner, his brother Joel. This ain't your daddy's no country for old men, after all. Drive Away Dolls rather excitedly asserts a space that one could call a country for young lesbians, if one were so inclined. The film itself is a queering of the 90s crime caper, the kind of sardonic, ironic, muscular, and oh-so-masculine film that the Coen brothers and their contemporaries, Quentin Tarantino, Guy Ritchie, et al., popularized some three decades ago, birthing generations of film bros. Cohen and Cook wrote the film together, and essentially uh, co-directed, though only Cohen is credited as the director with Cook as editor. She also edited The Big Lebowski and Oh Brother Where Art Thou with the brothers. The script, written some 20-odd years ago, originated from Cook's queer youth in New York City's lesbian bars and has been sitting on the back burner for years. The 1999 setting of these events is at once a reflection of the script's age and an inadvertent throwback to the kinds of movies it references. With its rapid-fire deadpan dialogue, low-canted angles, detached, ironic violence, and cookie transitional wipes, it feels it's it feels self-conscious retro if it if it even if it was all at one time intended to be temporary. The plot centers on an odd couple of friends, Jamie, Margaret Qualley, an amorous lesbian Lothario, and Marianne, Geraldine Viswanathan, a butt-toned up office worker who decide to drive to Tallahassee, Florida, where Jamie catches too much heat for cheating on her Cop X Suki Beanie Feldstein. The friends opt for a cheap drive-away rental car and are accidentally given a vehicle with a secret stash in the trunk, sparkling a chase across state lines involving a senatorial sex scandal. And though they've got two bumbling henchmen in pursuit, these gal pals live, laugh, and lady love their way through every sapphic saloon south of the Mason-Dixon line. It's Pulp Fiction with dildos and it's unabashedly horny and female pleasure-centric. 
Yet one can't ignore the nagging sense at times that Drive Away Dolls just feels like the lesbian porn parody of a dude-heavy crime comedy. A basement makeout party hosted by a woman's soccer team is just a little too far-fetched. But then again, so is the supremely silly sex scandal that animates the entire plot. The film is often crude in a way that's cringeworthy, but it's also stacked with jokes and moves at such a brisk place. It's barely 85 minutes long, that it's over before you know what hit you. Quayle and Viswanathan are fantastically committed and charismatic with the former demonstrating a capacity for broad comedy. Viswanathan is lethally precise in her line deliveries. But open the hood of the story and it turns out this better is a this beater is a lemon. The mechanics of the plot simply aren't there. How or even why are these two friends? Coleman Domingo growls appealingly at some sort of crime boss, but who is his character? What are the stakes of this scandal, and why should we care? Does plot device A insert into story element B? Maybe not, and maybe no one cares if this jumble of amusing parts makes a coherent whole. The slight and scanty drive-away dolls could dissipate with a gust of wind, but it beats a hasty getaway before that becomes a problem. While its story fails to justify its own existence, it delivers what it says on the tin. Dumb, randy fun, even if that feels retrograde in more ways than one. That with Ethan Cohen goes all in on trashy fun in film, fun in female driven crime caper by Katie Walsh. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 27, 2024. Walsh is a Tribune News Service film critic. The name of the film is Drive Away Dolls, rated R for crude sexual content, full nudity, language, and some violent content, running time 1 hour 24 minutes, playing in wide release. All right, we have a couple of articles from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 28, 2024. Uh, this first one is Dylan to join Nelson at Bowl. Two legends will co-headline Outlaw Tour with a stop in L.A. on July 31st. By Nardine Saad. Bob Dylan is joining Willie Nelson's Outlaw Music Festival this summer, performing at all 25 shows during the annual Turing Festival. The legendary music musicians and longtime friends will be accompanied by Robert Plant and Alison Krauss on the first leg of the tour, which kicks off June 21st at Alpharetta, Georgia. John Mellencamp will join the second leg on July 29th with his first Outlaw show set for North Island Credit Union Amphitheater in Shula Vista, California. Dylan and Nelson are billed to play Los Angeles' Hollywood Bowl on July 31st, where Mellencamp and sober and skinny singer Brittany Spencer will join them. Nelson notably played the bowl last summer when he celebrated his 90th birthday with many of his friends, including Neil Young, Beck, George Strait, Chris Christopherson, Snoop Dogg, Chris Stapleton, Miranda Lambert, Cheryl Crow, Dave Matthews, and the Chicks. As for Outlaw, known for its consortium of progressive country and Americana acts, Celise and Southern Avenue will play at various stops, and Billy Strings will join the tour for one show at the George Amphitheater outside Seattle on August 10. The festival wraps on September 17 in Buffalo, New York, and tickets go on sale Friday. City Card members can access pre-sale tickets from Tuesday until Thursday through the City Entertainment Program. 
This year's Outlaw Music Festival tour promises to be the biggest and best, yet with this lineup of legendary artists, Nelson said Tuesday in a statement on the festival website. I am thrilled to get back on the road again with my family and friends playing the music we love for the fans we love. Among those friends is Dylan, who will join the full tour for the first time. Nelson's Heartland co-writer previously performed a few shows with the festival in 2017. Most recently, the Knockin' on Heaven's Door and the Times They Are a Changin' singer-songwriter has mostly performed at intimate theaters in North America. Outlaw Music Festival, the Outlaw Music Festival debuted in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 2016. Its success prompted Nelson, as longtime manager Mark Rothbaum, and promoter Blackbird Pre Presents to turn it into a touring franchise expanding to 10 cities in 2017 and 18 in 2018. The festival made its first stop in LA in 2018 when Nelson and his family band were joined at the bowl by the Grateful Dead alumnus Phil Lesh and friends along with Sturgill Simpson and Margot Price, Nelson's son Lucas Nelson, and his band The Promise of the Real and Par uh, Particle Kid. That was Dylan to join Nelson at Bowl by Nardine Saad from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times Friday, uh, Wednesday, February 28, 2024. And here's the other one. Uh, this is called Porno for Pyros Gets a Spark and Fond Farewell. The band's L.A. show was a goodbye for the group as Perry Farrell sets his sight on new music with Jane's Addiction by Pamela Chellin. Porno for Pyros started their farewell show on February 18th in the hometown, Los Angeles, by giving the crowd an orgasm, musically that is, opening their concert at the Velasco with Orgasm off their 1993 self-titled debut album, Perry Farrell and his bandmates delivered a high-energy set blazing through their new song, Agua, along with the with most of the songs from both of Porno for Pyro's decades-old albums. Farrell certainly knows how to host a party, and this night was no different. The charismatic frontman, whose elastic vocals are still in top form more than 30 years after forming the group, frequently engage with the audience and periodically sip from a bottle of red wine on stage between songs. For Farrell and guitarist Peter DiStefano, bassist Mike Watt, who replaced the band's original bassist Martin Lenovo, and drummer Stephen Perkins, along with touring keyboardist Robin Hatch, and backing vocalist Eddie Lau Farrell, Farrell's wife, the elect electric show was a goodbye for the group who announced their reunion and farewell tour last November. At the end of the show, Perkins threw his drumsticks into the cheering crowd and Farrell said, Thank you so much, LA. I'll never forget you. The band then locked arms and took a bow together. Farrell stepped off the front of the stage and onto the floor where he took pictures with and hugged some of the fans, several of whom were in tears. As sad as it is for the band's fans, however, it is even more so for the mercurial frontman. A week before Porno for Pyros hit the road, Farrell is melancholy. Speaking to the Times over Zoom, he says, I personally don't really want it to be a farewell, before wistfully staring into the distance as his eyes welled up with tears. Dressed casually in a blue and white check button down shirt, white t-shirt, and blue jacket, Farrell explains that he wants to maintain both porno for Pyro's and Jane's addiction, but feels backed into a corner by the music business with the public's passion for the latter band 
far surprising its desire for porno for pyros. I often say, if you give me a choice, I want both. Ask me if I want chocolate or vanilla, I want chocolate and vanilla, Pharrell says. But the music industry is a funny thing. They like to go with a winning horse. They want Jane's because the people want Jane's. Jane's was first. It's about demand. With these remarks and the debut of a new song, True Love, at Jane's Addiction concert in Bakersfield last year, it would seem that the legendary band is getting closer to having a new record to release, which Farrell is quick to confirm. Bassist Eric Avery, who rejoined the band in 2022 after a 12-year absence, guitarist Dave Navarro was unable to perform with Jane's Addiction in 2022 and 23 due to long COVID, and Perkins, who was in both bands, are all involved with the new album. Along with Jane's Addiction's recent Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nomination, they were also nominated in 2016, but ultimately not chosen by it to be inducted, the new record is exciting news for fans. Not only will this be Jane's Addiction's first new album since 2011, The Great Escape Artist, but it will be the first time since 1990's Ritual Les De Lo Habitual that the classic lineup will appear together on a Jane's Addiction record. As per Farrell, there might also be contributions from guitarist Josh Klinghopper, who last year replaced Navarro on tour. As to what stage the record is at or a release date, however, Farrell is tight-lipped and offers this comment instead. The best news is that we've matured as men and musically, and I have the and I have already heard music that I'm very proud of. Jane's addiction continues to set the comeback wheels in motion. Toward the end of May until early July, the band will headline a tour through Europe for the first time in eight years. As to whether Navarro will join the band on their next outing, his manager Peter Katzis says they certainly hope he will be there, but it's too soon to. To determine. Speaking over the phone to the Times, Katzis says, Dave is certainly getting better and is definitely excited about the work that's been done on the studio, on the new, on the new Jane's musician, new Jane's music in the studio, but he's still working on recovering from some of the effects of some of the long COVID-related issues. In the meantime, with Farrell's focus turning away from porno for pyros and toward Jane's addiction, it seems reminiscent of the early 90s, except in reverse. In 1991, it was Jane's addiction that Farrell said goodbye to before sparking up porno for pyros in 1992. It might have been intimidating to proceed in the wake of an iconic band, but De Stefano tells the Times over the phone that he's confident in porno for pyros because the music sounded very different from Jane's addiction's uh, idiosyncratic mix of rock, glam, reggae, psychedelia, funk, heavy metal, goth, and punk. The way Jane's Addiction invented alternative rock, we were punk jazz, DiStefano said. In terms of singers, Perry is one of one. He is like Van Gogh on The Voice. He's got a vocal range that's crazy, so I started to incorporate Middle Eastern scales and jazz doing chords that don't go in rock and roll, but with the Led Zeppelin Jimi Hendrix vibe. And that's why Porno for Pyros is so unique. As to the myth that the band's provocative name was inspired by a fireworks ad inside a pornographic magazine, Pharaoh refutes it. No, he says, I don't look at porn. A moment later, grinning, he, said, he adds, and especially in front of people. And the origin story isn't salacious in the, in the least, Pharaoh says. Ahead of the 4th of July holiday, during a Jane's Addiction tour in 1991, 
Farrah was perusing a commercial fireworks catalog in the band's dressing room before a concert. When he showed it to Stuart Ross, Jane's Addiction's then-tour accountant, Ross said it looks like a porno for pyros, to which Farrow said, that's what I'm going to name my next band. It also became the name of the band's 1993 debut album, and its second track. Though the record landed at number 3 on the Billboard 200 charts, driven by Jane's Addiction's fans' early interest, Porno for Pyros never reached the meteoric success of its iconic predecessor. Still, several songs landed in the top 10 on the Billboard Modern Rock chart. Cursed Female and Cursed Male were released together as the band's co-lead single, with the former being made into the band's first music video. Trippy, intense, and heavy, featuring Pharaoh's high-pitched wail, it landed on number three on the modern rock charts. It was followed by Pets, which assumed the top chart position for five weeks. Directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, its music video was also played in heavy rotation on MTV. With its somber laid-back vibe, Pharaoh's crooning vocals and its repetition, repetitive catchy chorus will make great pets, the rhythmic song was more commercially appealing. Ironically, as per DiStefano, Pets was initially perceived to be a throwaway song on the album, but was propelled by phone-in requests to radio stations by those who had bought the record and led to the band headlining slots at festivals. By the time they were in the process of recording their 1986 sophomore record, Good God's Urge, however, Porno Papyrus was showing signs of wear and tear. Due to the band's internal strife, Lenoble quit and was replaced by legendary punk bassist Watt. Guests featured on the album included Navarro, Red Hot Chili Peppers' Flea, and Love and Rockets' Daniel Ash, David J., and Kevin Haskins. Lead single Tahitian Moon took the number 8 position on Billboard's Modern Rock chart, and was listed by Spin as one of the 96 top alternative rock songs of 1996. But with its lyrics describing a capsized boat and uncertainty about making it back to shore, the song unwittingly foreshadowed the band's demise, a byproduct of a reckless lifestyle rooted in heavy drug use. With Porno Papyros, it was so dark, Farrell notes. It's like a story that you almost can't believe the guys lived through. It is especially true for DiStefano, who has been clean and sober for 26 and a half years but at the time was battling cancer and a heroin addiction, which he says made it torture to be in the band. Except for a performance at Pharaoh's 50th birthday party in 2009, the band lay dormant for 22 years until they played a virtual set with Watt on bass at the Lola 2020 livestream event, followed by several live appearances of Porno for Pyro's original lineup in 2022, including Lollapalooza in Chicago. With newfound momentum, last summer, Por Porno for Pyros announced a 30th anniversary reunion tour, which was later postponed while the band wrote and recorded new music, including Agua, their first new song in 26 years, and their follow-up single, Little Me. The rescheduled tour, however, was reframed as a farewell, and with Watt once again replacing Lenobel, who departed the band amicably this time. In the meantime, ahead of his 65th birthday next month, Farrell shows no signs of slowing down, though he was jet-lagged upon returning from Lollapalooza, India, before heading into a week of rehearsals in North Hollywood ahead of Porno for Pyro's tour. Before Mumbai, 
he attended the Sundance Film Festival for the premiere of the first two episodes of the three-part docuseries Lola, the story of Lola Palooza, which Farrell co-produced. Farrell has conflicted feelings about it. He is honored that it was made and expresses gratitude for the filmmakers, but reveals that he had not been keen to release the docuseries just yet. My partners wanted to, Farrell says. I honestly did not. He explains that it feels it's too early to tell the story of Lollapalooza because it's still being told. He also felt unsettled at Sundance, watching what he says was a different cut from what he had been shown previously. That bothered me, he said. It was a little traumatic because, to be 100% honest, there were stories I wouldn't have liked to have told that didn't make it. They were left on the cutting room floor, and I hang on to Lola for spiritual reasons, and that wasn't portrayed. Farrell attends a legendary festival he co-founded every year. I almost need it, like it's an addiction, he says. He loves meeting the next generation of real musicians, those who take risks in life and write honest songs about their experiences. I want to befriend them because I know I can trust them. They're not cowards, he says. If anyone has earned their right to preach about authenticity and about authentic artistry, it's Farrell. The man born Peretz Bernstein has been lauded as the godfather of alternative rock. He says he first learned of the title when he saw it written on his Wikipedia page. I was proud to be the alternative to Bulls music because it's not easy to come up with alternative music, Farrell says. Most people, what they do is they hear something and then they want to be that too, so they just copy that sound. But I never took the word alternative the word alternative to mean rock, he continues. When I was coming up, what was important to my culture was alternative energy, solar power, wind power, hydropower. The world is sick and needs to be healed. It needs to be taken off of oil and damaging plastic products. And if I can be part of that and be known as one of those pioneers of that, a long-standing environmental activist, Farrell says his principles have remained steadfast throughout the years, but they have been some, there have been some major changes in his life. He very recently gave up hard drugs, but says he still enjoys marijuana and red wine, both of which he considers to be spiritual. Since 2002, he has been married to Eddie Lau Farrell, a singer-dancer whom he first met when she was a dancer on a Jane's Addiction tour. The couple launched live electronic music series, Heaven After Dark, and have two sons together. Farrell also was a son with ex-girlfriend Christine Cagle, who was featured on the Good God's Urge album cover. Farrell now believes in God, whose existence he questioned for years, praying and devoting much of his time to studying mysticism. He keeps him from being overwhelmed by the current state of the world, he says. Citing Israel and Gaza, Ukraine and Russia, gun violence, rape, and sex trafficking, Farrell says, It's twice as dark as it's ever been. I start my mornings depressed, but then I start to study and I see the light. Accordingly, he is adamant that humanity will redeem itself and vanquish in the darkness. It's going to end because we're going to unify. What will happen is the collective human mind will decide, Farrell says. We're going to learn how to settle and live in harmony with our neighbors. All I think about is the cause, how to settle the world. I'm in a position to help because that's what I do for a living. I want to use the universal language of music to bring people together through Lola, through other means. Until then, Pharaoh will unite people with his music 
and continue to spark nostalgia and set the stage on fire during the band's farewell tour. Porno for Pyros has a very special place in my heart, he says. We write great music together. I really hope that the people will want us and that this farewell is just for now. That was Porno for Pyros gets a spark in fond farewell by Pamela Chellin from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 28, 2024. In case you want to notice, it's Perry Farrell that's Jewish in this group. Right, let's turn to some articles from the Jewish Journal for February 23rd to the 29th, 2024. And the columnist section, this is called Israel's Long War by Dan Schnur. We've known since the afternoon of October 7th that this Gaza war was going to be much longer, darker, and uglier than its predecessors. But over the last few weeks, the end of the conflict has seemed especially far away. By the time you read this, Israel's assault on the southernmost Gaza city of Rafah may have already begun. It's clear that the majority of Hamas leadership and ground fighters have relocated there for what they see as a cataclysmic battle against the Israeli military. It's equally clear that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu sees the opportunity to strike a decisive blow against the terrorists, renewing his vow for a total victory. Meanwhile, Hamas's negotiators have been sitting, setting such outlandish conditions for the release of additional Israeli hostages that Netanyahu has removed his representatives from those discussions. And Netanyahu went to great lengths last week to throw cold water on calls for a two-state solution as his cabinet issued a formal declaration stating that any such agreement would grant a major prize to terror. Neither the end of the fighting nor the hostages' freedom seems like any time soon. As the war drags on, the international community's patience and Americans' interest is waning. The urgency of the Ukrainian war effort, along with renewed evidence of Vladimir Putin's menacing goals, has moved that conflict back to the top of the news after being eclipsed by the violence in the Middle East for several months. Israel's efforts to defeat the terrorists now runs the risk of slipping into the oh yeah category for those without a direct stake in the crisis. New revelations about the United Nations support for Hamas have been met not only not with outrage but with shrugs. Most appalling was the assertion in a British television interview from a senior UN official saying that Hamas was not a terrorist organization and indicating that it should instead be categorized as a political movement. Attempting to clarify his statement uh, the next day, Martin Griffiths, head of the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, wrote on the social media site X that while Hamas has committed acts of terror on October 7th, it is somehow not on the Security Council's list of groups designated as terrorist organizations. Israel's official account posted this response. Just to clarify, you're a Hamas apologist, and your statements are an insult to every single victim of October 7. Pathetic. The exchange received scant media coverage in the U.S. A day later, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant released a video of a U.N. relief worker removing the body of an Israeli man who had been shot on October 7, providing the first visual evidence to support Israel's allegations that UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, employees employees assisted in the, employees assisted in the Hamas attacks. 
Meanwhile, the Israeli army announced the existence of the of an underground Hamas tunnel complex directly beneath UNRWA's Gaza headquarters. But much of this information has been overshadowed by a series of alarming news reports from Russia, including the death of dissident Alexei Navalny, the emergence of Russian efforts to develop nuclear capability in outer space, and the increasingly precarious state of Ukrainian military efforts after the fall of the key strategic city of Avdivka. Just as the Ukraine-Russia stalemate robbed that conflict of a compelling storyline to attract Western media and public attention for much of last year, the protracted fighting between Israel and Hamas appears to have to be having a similar effect. Putin famously wagered at the outset of his war that the West's level of interest in the fight with Ukraine would diminish as time passed and that international backing would diminish as well. It appears that his gamble may have proven to be correct. Even as Europe continues to increase its military and financial aid, domestic political divisions in the U.S. make our country's continued role much less certain. The same international impatience for a quick victory could also impact Israel's challenge. But simply because a war is long and slow doesn't make it any less important. American resolve and patience are more important than ever, especially among American Jews. That was Israel's Long War by Dan Schnur from the Columnist section. Dan Schnur is the U.S. politics editor for the Jewish Journal. He teaches courses in politics, communications, and leadership at UC Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. He hosts the monthly webinar, the Dan Schnur Political Report for the Los Angeles World Affairs Council and Town Hall. Follow Dan's work at www.danschnurpolitics.com. And also from the columnist section, this is called The ACA and Democracy by Daniel Stone. The drama can still be viewed online. The Senate stood deadlocked one vote from repealing the landmark Affordable Care Act. Senator McCain, the tiebreaker, strode to the center of the Senate floor as all eyes focused on him. He extended his arm and flipped his thumb downward, defeating the repeal. With that gesture, McCain saved health care for millions. He prevented health care insurance companies from once again denying coverage to cancer victims, diabetics, and others with pre-existing conditions. He allowed those up to age 26 to maintain coverage under their parents' insurance. Since the failure of the repeal, Republicans' approach uh, to the ACA largely mirrors the politics of Medicare. Though most Republican legislatures opposed the 1964 measure for seniors, they supported it once their constituents gained the benefit of health care. Similarly, many Republicans now echo conservative Idaho Senator Mike Crapo, who considered the, considers the ACA part of all of the existing health structure. Yet candidate Trump remains hostile. He continues to call for repeal, promising much better health care for American people. Like his 2017 repeal effort, a replacement proposal remains conspicuously absent. Without an alternative health insurance program, nor discussion of any specific pitfalls of the ACA, it can be fairly suspected that Trump's motivation to end the ACA reflects personal animus toward President Obama, and a desire to trash his signature accomplishment. The fact that millions of innocent Americans could be caught in the middle does not seem part of the equation. As a physician caring for patients depending on ACA, I worry about a second Trump term. 
The political influence Trump would leverage to end the ACA starts with diehard MAGA loyalists who account for only about a third of the GOP. Yet in Republican primaries, that core of support proves decisive. As Liz Cheney's fate shows, neither Republican nor conservative bona fides will protect any anti-Trump incumbent. Trump's near-absolute control of Republican legislatures should underline concerns about democracy in a second term. Based on the number of vulnerable Democratic seats in the Senate, Republicans will likely regain control after the 2024 election. Like previous elections, the House appears a toss-up. If Trump were elected with control of both houses, a subservience of the GOP legislatures would confer absolute power, even without uh, extra-legal actions. Only the Senate filibuster rule would stand in his way. If Trump moved to end the filibuster, who among his cohorts of Republican senators would muster the courage to give a McCain-like thumbs down? The last independent-minded Republicans have already been primaried, retired, or otherwise sidelined. As the events of January 6th show, the sine qua non of Trumpism is avoiding the loss of power. The January 6th investigations uncovered Trump's use of bogus slates of electors to try to flip the states he lost. Only Vice President Pence's refusal to cooperate frustrated the coup. Given the brazen power grab, what might we expect from a term-limited Trump trying to extend his power beyond a second term? The likely answer is an ancient is as ancient as the Roman Empire and as current as North Korea's regime. He would likely choose a, fam- a family member as a surrogate for a Trump third term. How many of the Republican sycophants could be counted on to oppose Donald Trump Jr.'s ascent to the presidency? In addition to the risk for American health care security, a second Trump term would also threaten progress on global climate change, reproductive freedom, and voting rights. But misguided policies can be revisited as long as the system's key checks and balances remain intact. Trump's threat to irreversibly destroying constitutional norms and our legal legacy of representative government poses a unique and profound risk far exceeding the danger to the ACA and other specific policies. The dangers once posed by President Nixon's Watergate activities now seem almost quaint compared to the possible election of a president willing to stage a coup to remain in power. Yet the lessons of Watergate still apply. The night Nixon fired Archibald Cox, the special Watergate prosecutor, Cox warned that uh, whether ours shall be a government of laws and not of men is now for Congress and the American people. A half century later, Cox's warning appears even more ominous as we approach this year's presidential election. That was The ACA and Democracy by Daniel Stone from the Colonist Section. Dr. Daniel Stone is a regional medical director of Cedar sinai Valley Network and a practicing internist and geriatrician with Cedar sinai Medical Group. The views expressed in this column do not necessarily reflect those of Cedar sinai right, This next one is called I'll Be Out in an Hour. This is also from the columnist section. I'll Be Out in an Hour by Mark Schiff. A very prominent rabbi who loves ice cubes found it hard to justify the extra money to get a fridge with a built-in ice cube maker when his old fridge went kerplunk. To him, it seemed like an extravagance. After phoning the head rabbi of Antarctica, the Antarctica rabbi ruled that he should get the ice cube maker. The rabbi said the built-in would also help to keep Shalom Bayit peace in the marriage. He, all, he said he knew it 
You know about a couple where the husband kept forgetting to fill the ice tray, and she divorced him. Two months later, the Antarctica rabbi became lunch for a local walrus when he entered the ocean for his daily mikvah. We are blessed to live in an age where the purchase of an occasional extravagance can make our lives so much more pleasant. When Abraham Lincoln was growing up, if, he, if at night he needed to go potty, even if it was 10 below zero, he had to make the uh, trek 50 or so feet outdoors to the outhouse. The outhouse was the size of a box a new refrigerator comes in. Back then, going out at night meant taking your life in your hands. The woods were teeming with grizzlies, mountain lions, and snakes, to name a few. Lincoln lived at a time when, even if he had money, there were few excesses to purchase to make your life more bearable. I am not a big excess guy, but occasionally I will get the urge to go wild. 30 years ago, I had a steam room put into my home bathroom and installed one in every house I've, I've since lived in. I still use it practically every day. My recent new purchase is my second big bathroom extravagance. To be transparent, I need to tell you that I did not first consult a rabbi before placing this order. I have two friends who recently installed a total washlet electric toilet in their homes. These are rich people who can afford to flush money down the toilet. Hearing their praise, praises of the Toto, I knew I had to get one. The Toto is life-changing. It is the dumb Perignon Rose Gold Methuselah of toilets. Your time-worn, ice-cold, plastic wood porcelain seat is now an artifact compared to this baby. Finally, the word restroom makes sense. This turns your everyday bodily function into a mini-vacation uh, to the Caribbean. Sitting on this is like flying first class. It's my new office. I don't have time to go into all of its functions because I must get back there and finish reading Ulysses, which I started this morning. I would have finished all 772 pages in one sitting, but I am in an unhurried reader. Here are a few. The seat warmer, the seat warmer has three functions. They are, they are low, medium, and burnt toast. When people over at my house come out of my bathroom after a session, they smile like they just hit the lottery. And they love sharing their experience. There is the warm water bid bidet function that you can choose between oscillating or pulsating modes adjustable in five different positions. Importantly, it would help if you remember to turn the bidet off. Otherwise, like the fountain outside the Bellagio, it's like the fountain outside of the Bellagio in Las Vegas. My favorite is the fan that dries you by blowing warm air. Need I say more without crossing the line? I am being honest when I tell you that you never want to leave this thing. If Jewish scholars of the 3rd and 6th centuries CE had the Toto, there would be no Talmud. One function I choose not to include is the automatic lid that goes up and down when you enter the bathroom. Who am I, King Salman of Saudi Arabia, that I need things to bow to me? Although in some circles, it is called throne. This is as close as, a, as go, uh, this is as close to going back to the womb as possible. The water heater can reach temperatures ranging from 86 to 104 degrees. Perhaps one day, if it's meant to be, Toto will attach an ice maker so a person doesn't have to keep running into the kitchen for more ice cubes. If you ring my doorbell and I don't answer, you will know exactly where I am. That was I'll Be Out in an Hour by Mark Schiff from the Columnist section. 
Mark Schiff is a comedian, actor, and writer, and host of the You Don't Know Schiff podcast. His new book is Why Not? Lessons on Comedy, Courage, and Chutzpah. And also from the columnist section, this is called From Loneliness to Fulfillment by Kylie Aura Lobel. It was a humid Saturday night in New York City in August of 2010. My new boyfriend Daniel was on a month-long comedy tour on South of South Africa, and I was walking to the subway after hanging out with my friend in Midwood, Brooklyn. Though she lived in a religious Jewish neighborhood, she was a secular Jew, so we spent the day shopping and eating sushi. As I was heading home, I felt depressed and lonely, like the city was caving in on me, like I was lost. I liked seeing my friend, but the fun didn't last after we said goodbye. I thought about how I wouldn't be able to sleep that night, and I wanted so badly for Daniel to come home already. And then I passed an Orthodox Jewish man with a long beard and a black hat walking down the street. He was holding pizza boxes and smiled as his four little children giggled and ran around him. What a nice way to spend a Saturday night, I thought. I hoped that one day I could have something like that, spending time with my own children, eating pizza and having fun with them on a Saturday night. I hadn't yet begun my conversation proce- conversion process, but I knew that uh, prioritizing my family would be a key part of my life if I were to become an Orthodox Jew. Growing up, I didn't have that strong family life at home. My mom and dad got divorced when I was five years old. After they split up, my mom became a nurse and often had to work 16-hour shifts, which meant that I'd be home with a babysitter on Saturday nights. When I got older, I spent Saturday nights by myself, watching movies and eating a large pizza all on my own. I tried to fill the loneliness in my soul with food. I'd feel good for about 10 minutes, then more depressed than ever once I realized it didn't work. This pattern continued into my college years, when my roommates would go home on the weekend and I'd be alone in my apartment, eating pizza and watching whatever was on TV, wishing I had someone to hang out with. Those moments were the hardest, the ones where I couldn't easily distract myself, where I'd contemplate what I was doing with my life and the meaning of it and why I was put on this earth. There had to be more to life than this, I thought. When I started going to my local Chabad with Daniel for Friday night dinner and learning about Judaism, I suddenly found that purpose. I was here for a reason. I had a special mission to carry out, which was to do good in the world and follow in the ways of Hashem and the Torah. A real game changer for me was keeping Shabbat. In the past, I spent Saturdays listless, going to the grocery store or wandering around New York City until I got lost or just feeling bored because I had so much free time and no idea what to do with myself. Shabbat gave me a much-needed break from technology and precious time with other people, where I could build real connections and feel f- uh, fulfilled. I could handle my worries, o- hand my worries over to Hashem on this day and relinquish control for once. I could just be. That good feeling from Shabbat carried over into Saturday night and the entire week. It centered me. This past week, I reflected on my journey over the past 14 years. It was a Saturday night and I was at the local kosher pizza shop picking up a pizza for my daughters, my husband, and me. I realized I had manifested my dream. As we sat around eating pizza, watching Mary Poppins, I thanked Hashem for this tremendous blessing. I was no longer lonely, no longer searching. Instead, I felt happy, I felt satisfied, and I felt fulfilled. Baruch Hashem. What gives your life purpose and meaning?
email me, kylieol at jewishjournal.com. That was from Loneliness to Fulfillment by Kylie Ora Lobel from the columnist section. Kylie Ora Lobel is the community editor of the Jewish Journal. All right, so let's go to this teaching, the, the section called Revi's Teachings. This is called Tetzave, a, King of, a Kingdom of Priests, from the teachings of the Lubavitcher Revi, Rabbi Menachem M. Schneerson. The eighth section of the book of Exodus begins as God tells Moses to co- uh, command Tetzave, in Hebrew, the Jewish people to provide olive oil to fuel the tabernacle's candelabrum. He then described the special garments that the priests, Moses' brother Aaron and Aaron's descendants, are to wear whenever they officiate in the tabernacle. God then instructed Moses to follow a week-long ritual to install his brother and nephews into their priestly office. This is followed by the description of the altar for incense. In Parashat Terumah, God instructed the Jewish people how to build the tabernacle, the means by which he dwells in this world and within each of us. These instructions also tell us how to make our lives and our sphere of influence into a home for God, how to refine them so that they can sustain divine consciousness. But once a home was built, it must be lived in. The tabernacle itself is just an empty stage a shell that is configured for spiritualizing reality, but that needs to be utilized. The next stage is for him to tell us how to use it. After Teruma comes Tetzave. Tetzave means you will command, but also you will connect. Thus, in Parsha Tetzave, God describes the priests who officiate in the tabernacle and how they are installed into this office. True, when God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai, He prefaced it with the promise that you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19.3. On a certain level, every Jew was supposed to be a priest, so wholly imbued with divine consciousness that it overtakes and encompasses him entirely. Nevertheless, ideal as this may sound, living at such a level would undermine the very purpose of creation, since God created us not to be angels but human beings who engage in the tasks of the living in order to elevate the and refine all aspects of the world and cause divinity to permeate all aspects of reality. Therefore, just as creation at large functions on a dual level, heaven and earth, day and night, ma- uh, male and female, so does bringing the divine presence into the world reflect this duality. There must be priests and lay people. In a sense, the priests are the exception that proves the rule. They serve both as the as the ideal and the lay population strives for and the channel through which divine consciousness is transmitted to the laity. As the former, the people are inferior to them and strive to emulate them. As the latter, the priests exist only to serve as the uh, to serve the people and provide them with the inspiration they need in order to accomplish their task, which is the true purpose of creation. On the personal level, then, the parasha is important for each of us because it describes both how our priestly proxies are made into what they are and, more to the point, how we are going to consecrate a portion of our personality to the sole purpose of serving God. By creating or installing the priest within, we can then relate to the physical human priest both and both see him and the idealized vision of ourselves and derive through him divine consciousness and inspiration. 
Just as the priest burned the incense and kindled the candelabrum as part of a daily ritual, so do we renew our intrinsic connection with God and diffuse this consciousness to the world on a daily basis. We offer incense by reciting the Shema every morning, thereby asserting our conviction in the absolute singularity of God in creation, how there is nothing apart from Him, and by uniting with Him in the morning, Amidah. We light our candelabrum by taking the, this inspiration and applying it to our daily lives. In this way, we remain connected and united with God throughout the day. It is therefore clear why the sections describing the kindling of the candelabrum and the incense altar frame the, this parasha. Together, they epitomize the message of the parasha. The Jew becomes the totally one with God, a total member of the kingdom of priests and the holy nation through the incense, and then transforms the world into one great temple of God through the candelabrum. That's Titzava, a kingdom of priests, from the Rebbe's teachings section, from the teachings of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem M. Schnurzen. The Rebbe's inspirational teachings on the Torah portion can be found in the Kehut Kumash pro, uh, produced by Chabad House Publications. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.